0: Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Tom Bissell, author of the short story collection, Creative Types.
1: To me, that's the greatest gift of fiction writing, is that it makes you very slow to hate, makes you slower than most people to judge, and it reminds you of the virtues of empathy and, and kindness. You know.
0: We'll be back with Tom Bissell after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's patreo dot firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved. Time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the first draft community. Go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today right now in this moment and on to the show. My guest today is Tom Bissell, journalist, critic, and writer of fiction, nonfiction, television, and video games. Some of his books include God Lives in St. Petersburg and Other Stories, Magic Hours, Essays on Creators and Creation, and Chasing the Sea, Lost Among the Ghosts of Empire in Central Asia. His book, The Disaster Artist... My Life Inside the Room was adapted to screen by James Franco and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Bissell's new short story collection is called Creative Types, which features tales of darkness and humor and present portraits of women and men struggling to bridge the gap between art and life. His stories feature a long-married couple hiring an escort for a threesome that goes wrong, middle school frenemies reuniting, and a mysterious profile of a real-life New York Avenger. We began the discussion with Tom Bissell sharing what draws him away from writing for hire and back to the short story genre.
1: Short stories for me are the place when I when I get really depressed, <laughs> when I feel like I'm just doing all this work for hire and I'm not actually touching the part of me inside that has things to express or language to conjure, I turn to the short story to kind of remind myself why I actually like writing. Because when you do a lot of work for hire, as I do, you can kind of have your enthusiasm for the the act of putting words on paper sort of beaten out of you. And short stories are a place where it's usually just me, and then later, if I'm lucky, an editor, and we kind of beat something into shape, and nobody's worrying about like runtime or nobody's worrying about um, any of the myriad things you have to worry about when you're writing for magazines, six space is another one, or, you know, when I do video game work or TV work, all of the things that sort of get in the way between you and expression are gone. And it's just me, the page and trying to put words in the right order where you're, trying to communicate a scene or a situation or a character to someone where they, they, they feel moved by it or excited by it. And it's, it's a much purer form of writing, but it's also a much nakeder form of writing. And you don't have as many, uh, guardrails between you and and, uh, failure, (laughs) you know, because in collaborative art, when things go wrong, you always have the emotional out of being able to blame it on other people for not, you know, well, they they didn't implement it right, or the actor was bad that day, or or this or that was happening. It's not my fault, but if you write a piece of short fiction and it doesn't work, it's kind of your fault. So it's a much more uh, direct, much more thrilling, much more personal form of writing, and... uh, It will not shock anyone in the audience to learn that it's also, you know, the uh, least remunerative form of writing of all the kinds of writing I do. But I write stories when something gets lodged in my head that I can't get out. And that's when I that's when I realize, oh, I have to write a short story about this. That's when I feel like uh, this needs to get out of me.
0: So were these written over time where you had this moments of this furious feeling or were these more written in a chunk that you reserved for this?
1: All, I think the stories in this collection are, are, they span about over a 20-year period. One of the stories I, I think I wrote in the 90s, believe it or not. So that's a story I wrote in 1999, one of them. The rest were written between, like, I'd say 2008 and 2020. But I'm, a, I'm kind of a strange person with stories because, you know, I, I don't have a normal career in that. You know, I don't teach creative writing someplace. Um and then, you know, work with my students and then work on my own fiction in my own time. Because I'm always sort of writing, writing, writing for a living. The time I get to actually work on my own stuff, quote unquote, is kind of more limited. So what happens to me is I'll get a situation or an image or a conundrum, a fictional conundrum stuck in my head. And nine times out of 10, it'll flash into my head and it'll be interesting. And I'll think, oh, that's maybe that's a short story. Nine times out of 10, it goes away. I never think about it again. But one time out of 10, something will get stuck in my head and it'll begin to just deepen and enlarge. Suddenly names start appearing, the things that happened before, after that kind of fragment that's in my head starts to expand. And that's when I realize, oh gosh, I really have to, to write this now. And it doesn't happen that often because, you know, I think most fiction writers are people that are just being bombarded with ideas, right? And it's kind of a mixed blessing for me that I do so much non-fiction Uh, writing. And by nonfiction, I mean, you know, magazine writing, but also all the other stuff that I do. It's kind of a blessing that, you know, the world has maybe spared some of my uh, uh, (laughs) less inspiring stories. But I do know that when I finally sit down to actually write one of them out, that it's kind of been stress tested over a period of weeks or months where I really feel like, okay, this, this, this is really interesting to me. And I really have to have to pursue this story to wherever it goes. And it just doesn't happen that often, you know, um, I wish it would happen more, but I do know that when it does, I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to finish it. I don't have a lot of false starts as a consequence.
0: So it sounds like you're ruminative, that you leave it in your head for a while. Is that true?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of weeks. The title story of this book. The fragment appeared in my head in probably like 2010. And I didn't actually start writing the story until 2015. So for five years, it just sat there. And then one day, the, another piece of the puzzle, I just heard someone tell a story. And I thought, oh, wait, that fits in this thing that's been sitting in my head for five years. And then suddenly I was like, oh, okay, now's the time to start writing. So yeah, I'm a ruminator. They just sit there and they, they curdle. Sometimes they rot, <laughs> but uh, sometimes they mature. Like cheese.
0: So, that title story, Creative Types, is about a young couple who are fairly successful in LA in show business. And they just had a baby. And so, their sex life is kind of lacking. And so, they invite an escort into their world. And the one thing they said that they don't want to talk about is their baby. So, their baby is aside, and the escort comes over. And it's really all a really dense scene of what happened once she shows up. So you were saying you start with this idea and it sort of blossoms. So what was sort of culminating for you that brought this over the line to say, okay, I got to keep going somewhere with this?
1: The fragment that launched into my head was something I saw walking through Portland, Oregon where I was walking through what's called uh, the Pearl District in Portland, which is this kind of swanky neighborhood. And I saw this older couple open the door of their ground floor apartment. And there was this young woman standing outside the, door, the doorway. And uh, they had a bulldog, I remember. The bulldog came out to greet her and she was like dressed to the nines and they just looked like just an average middle-aged couple. And she said, and this is in the story, She's, it's so good to see you again. And I was just kind of watching this scenario unfold. And I wondered, is that a working girl? Like, what is going on with that situation? And they went in, the door closed. So I just started thinking, what happened there? What drove all those people to that moment? And uh, a story about a couple that hires an escort. That's interesting. Uh, What happens after that? And then it was a, a friend of a friend, once we were a, a bunch of people were at dinner, and this person was just telling this long story about a, a, a stripper friend of his who went on this crazy journey with this uh, rich guy from Saudi Arabia who took her all over the world in like 48 hours, and how she lost all her money and this crazy story. And that's when I realized, oh, that is the story that this the escort of my imagination tells this middle-aged couple once they're in the middle of things. But to me, the thing I'm proudest of about the story is that I think the first time I kind of wrote it out, the expected thing happened. This middle-aged couple hires this attractive young escort to spice up their sex life. One of them gets jealous and it turns into a miserable experience for everyone. And I was like, that's just not that interesting because that's the ending that anyone would have predicted. So I thought, when I was going back over it, can I write like a really good-natured, open-hearted, sort of sweet-minded story that's filthy? <laughs> like, can I come to a story where it's like, nothing? it's not a terribly dark story, you know? It's a fairly good-natured story, and everyone ends the story in this kind of moment of intimacy with each other and this new understanding, which, as you say, like this, the, the idea of children comes into it, and it unites them, and it all bonds them together. And I thought, like, could I write an absolutely filthy story that, like, uh, uh, you know, a mother or father could read and be like, well, that's sweet. (laughs) So that was the challenge I sort of set out for myself when I was going over it again to figure out, like, what's a better thing to happen to all these people? And it was trying to drive the right series of conversations to just bring them all together at the end rather than drive them apart.
0: I like the idea too that once you have a kid as hard as you try to just put it aside for the night that they just couldn't do it. Like the one thing that to them was forbidden, they couldn't stay away from, which was talking about their kid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've fallen victim to that multiple times, never in quite that circumstance, but uh, yeah, no, my daughter is uh, seven. And um, yeah, it's kind of a, a bit of a, of, of rewiring that every time you try to get away from it, 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 you realize that A, you don't really want to, and B, like, you know, why bother? You're kind of a marked person at that point.
0: Yeah, it's like in some ways it just does make you less sexy. <laughs>
1: yeah. 100% less, less sexy. It's uh, it's even, it's more than that, though. It convinces you of the futility of even trying to seem sexy, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a moment, like, in every guy's life. Even if you're happily, you know, uh, betrothed to someone else and you're, you know, walking around and, you know, like uh, uh, an attractive person roughly your age comes towards you, you'll stand up a little taller and try to, you know, look a little bit more commanding. You know, I found that ever since I've become a dad, like, you know, gut out, (laughs) you know, crappy clothes, stains on them, It just doesn't matter anymore. Like, why even bother? The the game is up. Uh, You're, you're... uh, You're not impressing anyone anymore, so don't even try.
0: Has that changed your writing?
1: Yeah, a bit. In that, I think one of the things that having a kid does is it it just makes you less performative in your writing. And I think my prose has gotten a lot less frenetic and frantic over the years. I'm just much more comfortable, just kind of easing into. I wouldn't say plain spoken. I don't think my prose prose has ever been very plain spoken, but just, I'm not trying to make every sentence, you know, a home run now. I'm much more content to let a few kind of traffic directing sentences, <laughs> you know, just uh, just sit there and not worry about, is this boring? Is this too dry? Because you're trying to get at stuff that's true. You know, you, you, you lo- you've been published a few times, you lose this impulse you have to like, I have to remind everyone that I'm a good writer at a certain point. That's just not important anymore. Um, obviously, you're a halfway good writer if, if you can consistently get published. So the anxiety you have about trying to impress other people with your with the sheer dizzying vitality of your prose just becomes way less interesting because they probably weren't that impressed in the first place. And you just want to just write things that are um, feel emotionally true, I would say.
0: I think, too, you have to let... And tell me how you feel about this statement. You have to let the gems shine. and if you if you put too many gems in the same page, like, for instance, that story, which became the title of this book, Creative Types, came from the escort. She's I don't have the it in front of me exactly, but she said, like, yeah, you seem like creative types. And it is something that you've probably heard someone say before, but when you really isolate it on its own, you realize kind of the power and how how pregnant that can be with so many different meanings. Does that make sense?
1: Very much so. Yeah, that's an important. I mean, I named it that. I titled it for that for that reason. Yeah, when I got to that line of dialogue, I thought to myself, "Ooh, there's the title." And so I'm glad you you jumped on that. And yeah, and, and having that spoken by that character, which implies a certain amount of. Uh, <laughs> Not suspicion necessarily, but she's way less impressed with them than, than than they would like her to be, right? And so, when she says that, you're never you're not quite certain if she's meaning that as a compliment or or not.
0: I love how it can be read as so dismissive. Like you seem like the creative type, like people who are the creative type and might identify as the creative type have probably worked their whole life to be the creative type. And that in one swipe of a comment, someone could sort of reduce <laughs> your whole, all your efforts to like
1: that. Uh, yeah, to a uh, stereotype. Yeah, it's no fun being stereotyped. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it does not feel good being reverted to type yeah
0: is your creative life because you were saying earlier about writing for tv and video games and journalism does does writing fiction feel like a different sport altogether
1: i would say more no than yes because ultimately anytime you're putting words on the page you're you're you know rearranging linguistic units to achieve maximum emotional effect on the reader, right? It's all about manipulating the reader. And I, I mean manipulating in a good sense, not in a cheap sensationalistic sense, but you're putting words in a certain order to create an emotional effect on someone else. Storytelling, the tools of it differ from genre to genre, obviously, but trying to put words on a page to make people feel things is the one thing they all have in common. And all these forms have different sorts of rules and strictures. I would say short fiction is the fewest amount of rules and strictures. Um, that's why I think it's the most kind of liberating to write in. Like nobody has ever really published a how to write a great short story book, you know, where there's a dozen like how to write screenplay books. But I, I, so I find it um, the most liberating, uh, the least rule bound. It's the form that you can sort of do really unexpected things in. Uh, probably most easily. But um, at core, though, there's a purity about the experience of reading fiction. It's so private, it's so internal. Movies are communal. Television has got all these. If you're watching a TV show that you're really into, you're also aware of all these artificialities around you, right? You, you can pause it, you can like uh, walk away. From the screen and, and let it run while you're doing your laundry there's just there's there's a mechanistic feeling to it all you're aware that these are actors and you can look them up online and see what other things they've done but somehow to me like when you're reading the printed page and it's the right kind of reader with the right kind of writer and there's a connection like the fact that you're holding pages that are glued together just all kind of vanishes in a way so i i feel like even more than the ideal viewing experience, the ideal reading experience has the, as the most transporting power of all of them. I think it's a much deeper connection because it's, a, it's, it's a, almost like a brain bridge between two people that you don't really get with communal entertainment because uh, the best movie you ever saw, if you've seen it in a the theater with a bunch of other people, you're, you're sharing that bridge with, dozens maybe even hundreds of other people and that's great too like a great movie with a bunch of people and they're all screaming you're feeling it that is a thrilling communal experience and that's it's a whole other thing i'm not trying to say these things are better or worse than the other but to me the thing that makes me a reader above all else is the, the electricity and the purity of that union between writer and reader
0: if there was such a thing as every time someone was reading your story and had like a thought about it. If they could like transpose that thought to your mind, so you got an alert, like Bing. Would you want to know?
1: No, no, absolutely not. Like I have friends that are writers, uh, friends that I've known for you know decades, and, and I don't even know if they've read my books. Like <laughs> you know, we just don't talk about it because um, sometimes some of their books I've not read. So um, it would feel it would it would. I just feel like. People who know me know me, but then people who don't know me, and I actually prefer it if people I know well, like I don't even want them to read my stuff because if they don't like it, they're going to feel obliged to be honest, and I don't want their honest opinion. You know? <laughs> just, just leave all of that stuff out of our friendship. Our friendship is us. It's you and me. Um, whether or not you like my work, I don't want that to, to cloud you know, our personal relationship. And so uh, I'm actually a little squirrely about people reading my stuff and and reacting to it i just prefer not to know uh, because i think of myself i have you know lots of friends who've written books that i do not like at all and dear god i'd never want them to know that so (laughs) you know i feel like uh you know i feel the same way i'm sure some of my closest friends have read stuff that i've written and been like "Pew, that was not a good Example of your talent, my friend. But of course, they would never tell me that because a civilized person doesn't. So uh, I would prefer to think of my ideal reader as just somebody far away from me, touched, moved, and feels the overriding determination to never be in touch with me at all. <laughs> they could just go about their lives, keep on reading my stuff and we never ever have to, to discuss it. So that's uh, that would be my, my ideal reader situation.
0: You write a lot actually in these stories, not, not all of them, but two of them in particular about a sort of fame. And the one that I'm actually thinking about is Avenger which is this Avenger guy. He's like a living superhero in New York. It's called my interview with an Avenger. And the the protagonist of the story is basically working for Esquire magazine and interviews this mysterious Avenger dude who goes out and kind of writes wrongs and becomes very famous. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit, the birth of this story for you.
1: So my friend Owen King was editing an anthology of stories uh, by contemporary writers about superheroes. And so Owen said, do you have any stories about superheroes? And I said, "Um, no, (laughs) I I don't. And he's like, would you want to write one? And I was like, well, let me think about that. And I just read this profile in, in Esquire of Angelina Jolie with all due respect to the writer of the profile and Miss Jolie herself, it was just this, like, you know that Esquire profile type language? Uh, Like, just totally overblown, totally ridiculous. Someone trying to stretch out their 45 minutes spent in the company of a movie star into this, like, think piece about modern culture. I read one of those profiles, and I thought, oh, here's the way to do a superhero story. Like, write it as 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 a fake Esquire profile. Like, a lot of the, the, the language in that story is kind of secretly pulled out of that Angelina, pro, Angelina Jolie profile from a long time ago. Turn it into like a think piece about vigilantism and just try to really explore like what are the ramifications of being a real life superhero? What would actually happen if someone tried to do that? And that was the best I could do in terms of trying to imagine what an actual real life superhero would do. And this is way before like the Avengers film came out and the Avengers were sort of launched into American consciousness. I had no idea in 2008 when I wrote the story that the word avenger would later be synonymous with costumed superheroes. So, but if if you're curious, like would, would there's a spoiler in that story. Would you like to hear the secret Nabokovian spoiler at the heart of that story? Yes. Okay, so if you have any interest in reading my collection, audience, just mute it for Three seconds, and then we'll come right back, which is the uh, the guy writing the Esquire profile is the Avenger.
0: The intimate access.
1: <laughs> yes. So there's all these little hints in it that he's, he's the, the crime-fighting superhero.
0: Probably my favorite line in the whole collection was also in this story, where you start talking about it, and people... It's like a big hubbub. Like, who is the adventure? What is he like? Avenger, what is he like? He wears a, a ski mask. Does he wear carbo, cargo pants? You know, what is he like? The question they ask is Is he funny? <laughs> Tell me, tell me about that.
1: Well, I think in the story, like he, the Avenger gets this reputation for dropping these uh, bon mots, like on the people, that he cold cocks and leg sweeps and stuff, right? So he's always good for a one-liner, you know, really brutal people who are funny. <laughs> you know, I think it's a pretty uh, uh, intriguing combination. Like if you have a guy who can just kick the crap out of you, but do it with a, with a witticism. I think it's one of the reasons we like Spider-Man and all these like old school comic book heroes because they were, they were goofy. They were funny. And so I imagined like, what would people be asking this journalist who's about to meet this guy? Is he, is he, is he genuinely funny? But to me, it gets to the deeper part, which is something Martin Amis always says, which is, you know, you know, all great writers are funny because life is funny. And if you can't pick up on the comic energy of life, then you're kind of missing the point. Of life, you know that even in the darkest recesses, when the awful things happen to you, just the absurdity of certain contrasts will strike you. Like I remember after my my own father passed away earlier this year, just thinking, like in the depths of my despair, I would see something just ridiculous happen, and I would laugh, and I would think, "Oh yeah, I'm laughing because life is funny," and the the light of those moments always has to push away the dark because if it doesn't, then then why are we even here? And so my fiction tries to be, it's not like David Sedaris, right? It's not It's not like a laugh a minute kind of a thing, but to me, like I can't write a story that's not fundamentally at its core a funny story. It has to have some of that lightness to it or else I don't think I could bear to, to write it. Even my story about John and torture kind of has a few funny bits in it and I don't think he could have less funny subject matter than John Yu and torture personally.
0: <laughs> do you find that it's hard to write funny? Like, do you spend more time on funny? Do you, do you sort of analyze it after it's written more?
1: No, because I think if, if you're, a, if you, if your mind goes that way, you're just going to, you're, you're just funny. Now I'm not saying I'm some laugh riot here. I'm not, this is not me trying to, to, uh, uh to praise myself as, as a comedic genius, but, I don't think all great writers are funny. I think some great writers have not been funny because the writers themselves just didn't have a sense of humor. That was a defect that they managed to overcome, I would say. But all the writers that I love tend to be funny. And I can't think of a single book that I've ever like adored whose energy at core wasn't that of, of the human comedy, rather than like, you know, some super. Norwegian meditation on the imminence of death and the inevitability of loss. Like, get me out of the room now. Like, I just, uh, I have enough of those thoughts, <laughs> you know, with, with uh, without uh, literary fiction pushing me over the cliff. Like, uh, give me something to hold on to. Give me something. Give me a buoy. Make me want to be alive. Make me want to read. Literacy should be a joy, not an obligation.
0: You had mentioned... John, you, which is in your story called The Fifth Category, and I'm happy to get to that in a minute, but I wanted to ask you like more in this whole collection, we're talking about funny, but I also felt like an undercurrent in many of these stories that had to do with violence and or confrontation. So I wanted to ask you if that sounded realistic to you, and I think it's also really interesting that it was kind of in a lot of these stories that you wrote over so long.
1: Yeah, my my stories tend to rush toward the explosive, to the the explosion point, right? And there's so many writers who can do that kind of quiet epiphany thing at the end. Where I've always felt, I've I've tried to write the quiet epiphanic story, where you come to the end with a kind of wan realization about something, and isn't that pretty? And you know, death is imminent, and let's just all move on. And as the passing light crosses the, the yard or whatever. For whatever reason, that's never been my bag as a writer. I don't mind reading those stories at all. You know, starting with Joyce, who was the master of the quiet epiphanic ending. But for me, I always need stories to get to their boiling point, point. and that, as you say, means physical confrontation. Sometimes that means violence. I don't know if that is a crutch. I don't know if you've just looked, peered deep into my heart as an artist and identified a glaring inadequacy. It's quite possible you have, but. I guess I like my stories to have a kind of clash that is reified rather than internal. And, and you know, a lot of my stories are about people's inability to know each other and their tendency to underestimate just how deep trouble they're actually in. And, you know, I, I, I kind of default to that story because it's something I've experienced a lot personally as a traveler and as a travel writer, which I did for years. And, Some of the stories I covered, the feeling of the sudden realization of how screwed you are is uh, a really powerful one for me. And some of the most memorable experiences I have are those sinking moments of, oh, gosh, I might not actually be safe here. And so I think I go to that well when I'm writing fiction because it is such an emotionally potent kind of thing to to experience that I, I guess I just like reliving it you know, through a fictional lens rather than a non-fictional lens.
0: Do you want to talk about the fifth category?
1: Yeah. um, It's a story about John Yu, who is the uh, Bush administration lawyer who basically wrote the memo that kind of legalized torture (laughs) for a couple of years in the United States. And I got really worked up about that at the time. You know, um, I just had this crazy hippy-dippy idea that the United States shouldn't torture people ever under any circumstances. And, you know, really admired Certain people on the right who, who uh, took that hard line as well, because it was pretty hard, apparently, for a lot of George Bush supporters not to wish the most sadistic and hideous forms of torture on our, on our enemies. But as John McCain said, it's not about who they are. It's about who we are. And I had a nightmare when I was living in Estonia, because I was flying back and forth from Estonia to America a lot, and I had a nightmare once on a plane when I was asleep that I woke up on this airplane and nobody was on it. And then I woke up on the airplane uh, that everyone was luckily, happily still on. And I remembered how panic-filled that that made me, waking up on this weirdly empty airplane. And then I started thinking, God, what a horrible thing to happen to someone. And then I thought, well, what if John Yu, the Bush administration torture memo guy, woke up on an empty airplane? And then that just started me on, like, the most horrible form of comeuppance I could imagine for this guy that did this terrible thing. But here's the crazy thing about writing fiction, let's see, is, is as I started writing it, you know, I was obligated to see things from John New's point of view. And in doing so, I came to see, like, the, this is a word that could be misinterpreted, the reasonability of his, of his position, which I don't think was reasonable. But when I inhabited him for what, like 65 pages of prose, I began to see things from his point of view. And so suddenly the story I concocted to punish this real life figure actually came to the, you know, by the time I was at the end of the story, it came to be like this moment where I was actually feeling pity for him. You know, and I'm the one who put him in the, in the horrible situation to begin with. But to me, that's the magic of fiction is that it shows how everyone is ultimately redeemable. when You try to understand things from their point of view, virtually everyone. Some people are not redeemable, but there are very few of those people. Most people are. And so even John Yu, I came to have a certain amount of sympathy for him, having, you know, tried to live in his shoes for a while. So it's, it's to me, that's the greatest gift of fiction writing is that it makes you very slow to hate makes you slower than most people to judge and it reminds you of the virtues of empathy and and kindness, you know, for lack of a better term.
0: Yeah, I think writing and reading are acts of empathy. The line in here that really got me was, you know, he's been a pariah. Everyone treats him that way. He, you know, went to speak at this conference in your story and barely made it to the conference, but he was hoping maybe for some kind of redemption or to be seen at this conference. Um, He did have to go halfway around the world to do that. Um, But he said, you have this line where you say, all he wanted was someone other than himself to admit that it was complicated. And I think that today, we just don't want to think about the complicated. We have our views and the complications don't matter.
1: Yeah. And as I read more about why you made the judgment you did, and again, let me preface this. I think, John, you did something absolutely stone-cold evil. But the fact was, as you read the story and you read the actual history of why he did, like there was no applicable law that applied to a lot of the Al-Qaeda terrorists that we captured. So well, that's a fact. So the Geneva Conventions are very hard to apply to people that don't have a chain of command, that that, that don't have like uh, um, a, a country... that that they're working in service of. So I think, John, you took that complication and transformed it into something terrible, but learning more about how he got to where he did, it becomes not sympathetic, understandable. It becomes more understandable. And so this guy who, to me, just seemed like an emblem of human wickedness that once I dug into his life and read papers by him and read books about him, I began to see that this is more complicated than I thought. Not so complicated that I'd ever say, he was right or feel bad for the guy, but more complicated than I thought. And so I'm so delighted you read that line aloud because whatever internet outrage du jour is happening, the thing I tell myself is, whatever anyone's mad about, it's way more complicated than they think it is. <laughs> and be, I don't necessarily have to have an opinion on this. So those are the two things I tell myself virtually uh, every day.
0: I have to tell you that I like John a lot more than I like Steve.
1: The loathsome character from the story Punishment. Yes, I would agree with you. At least John, you know, reads books.
0: <laughs> I think I think Punishment, though, in some other way was, I, I think it was my favorite story in there. Because, oh, wow. because you built up so much tension and because you had to really it was the most feeling story for me where I just felt the most. And and the general gist of it, I'll I can give a summary. And basically you have these these two old friends, Steve and Mark. They were friends when they were younger, I believe in Michigan. And they were bullies. They bullied other people. But Mark was softer than steve he he had a limit to his bullying they got caught there was one young man named trevor that steve really beat up and hurt and put in the hospital and the parents you know really threatened steve and steve really wouldn't back down but mark did back down and then we jump ahead like 20 years later where mark's in new york and steve comes to visit so He's reliving all of this. And Mark is now a creative type, you could say. He Mm -hmm. works for an editor for a a literary journal, literary criticism.
1: Basically, the New York Review of Books, basically, is is what it's supposed to be. yeah.
0: Yeah. And so he's revisiting his past. And I'm just curious about what brought you to the page on this story and how you really modulated that tension, if it's something you can even articulate.
1: I don't know if I can, that, that, that's a story. That's the, that's the story I wrote in the late nineties. So that's the oldest story here. I was 25 years old when I wrote that, I was, you know, writing it about friends that I'd had growing up and lives diverging people that you're close to in second grade. You kind of have this bond with forever, right? But what if what happens is when you grow up is that you become a completely different person and they become like a monster. So I had asked myself, "How do I deal with this thing in my own life that these people that I was once very close to are now people that I don't even want to be in the same room with?" And so the story was just kind of an exorcism of a bunch of things I'd been feeling with people from, you know, back home, and you know, one of whom is now a multimillionaire. (laughs) So uh, you can be uh, loathsome and uh, quite successful in our culture. So cheers to uh, the American way but um yeah it's it's not, i wouldn't say it's an autobiographical story i would say it's a it's a story with a vein of autobiographical anxiety in it but um you know i think C, steve just stands in for the feelings we have of becoming apart from the people we were once closest to and realizing that we've changed they haven't or maybe they've changed and we haven't or maybe we both changed it's very hard to know what makes people diverge and become so drastically different from each other. And so uh, I, I don't know if there are a lot of listeners out there who are um, you know, small-town kids, as I am, but when you come from a place that doesn't have a lot of creative types in it, necessarily, there's some baggage there to work out with later on in your life when uh, you kind of reckon with the people you grew up with.
0: Yeah, you had a line in there, and I can't find it right now, but it w- was something about how like maybe money for people like that is like a win for society because they, because they make money, they can't do further evil. They're just comfortable.
1: Right. Yeah. this Is the line that, it, you know, it seemed to him of newfound importance that Stalin and Hitler were once completely indigent <laughs> you know, and, and from there, they just marched on into the, into infamy. But if you just lavish money, on a certain kind of malevolent personality that maybe that's, maybe that'll be all for the best in the, in the end run. Yeah. I really kind of believe that obviously it's no safeguard for certain kinds of bad people, but, uh, I think garden variety, bad people, uh, you can kind of defang them a bit.
0: In an earlier story, you said, um, the time for the American voice was over and I wanted to ask you about that.
1: So that is a story about a kind of travel writer who's super, self-conscious about his fading career and he's on his honeymoon with his new bride who's younger than he is and pregnant and they do not have a wonderful relationship and in fact they're on their honeymoon and yet obviously they're both thinking that they may have made a terrible mistake and um this guy's thinking like why am you know nobody wants to listen to me i'm a white guy i'm an american writer nobody's interested in white american writers anymore and so that is certainly an anxiety i think a lot of middle-aged Uh, white writers sort of have from time to time in today's literary culture. And rather than like write an earnest piece for like Quillette about why it was so sad that white writers aren't being read, I thought I'd just make fun of that (laughs) sentiment, you know, (laughs) put it in the mouth of this obvious blowhard D-bag and just sort of have fun with it. So I find that whenever I find myself having career anxiety, about my own state of my own career, the best way to, to deflate that balloon is to just create a really jerk-ass version of myself and then just make fun of them. And you realize that, yeah, all these things I'm worried about, they're not important. It's fine. Everything will work itself out one way or another. Uh, and, and so I think I've taken the edge off of some of my um, blowhardish tendencies by uh, identifying them and mocking them in print. The guy in that story is, is like uh, a version of myself that I don't like either. And um, I find it very cathartic to uh, to write about myself from an outside perspective in that way. So, um, yeah, making fun of my own anxieties uh, helps me deal with it.
0: Can you read a, a selection from an author that influenced you as a writer?
1: So I'm going to read a tiny little chunk uh, of Thomas McGuane's book, The Bushwhack Piano. And Tom McGuane was a writer, he's from Michigan, even though he mostly writes about Montana, um, that kind of blew my head off when I was 16. And uh, the part I'm gonna read is this incredibly batshit section where it's hard to tell uh, without seeing the page. But parts of it are in quotes. Parts of it aren't. It's it, it's this piece of prose that just lives in this weird tense. I call it like marijuana tense. It's this really strange tense where things are sort of in the character's head, but then they're not. And uh, you know, this the free indirect style that James Wood talks about, where where um, in third person prose, where the the third person narrator sort of fuses with the consciousness of the character that it's about, and the the prose sort of mimics their thought patterns and then withdraws again and becomes the more impartial third person voice. But that, that when free and direct style is working really well, it just completely blurs the line between first person and third person narration. It's my favorite. I always write, I usually write in third person because I love that feeling. So this is a part where Nicholas Payne, the main character is sitting in a bar in uh, Montana and his, uh, his girlfriend, Anne is cheating on him. And he's just met this guy, C.J. Clovis, who has this idea for a a bat tower, a high rise for bats. It's as bananas as it sounds. You do meet some people in a bar, thought Payne, who continued drinking. Gradually, he ceased to think of the unimaginable C.J. Clovis, the bat tower guy, and to nurse instead his obsession with the possible infidelities of Anne. He thought of calling the house, but knew his fears would be heard in his voice. He was, moreover, a little intimidated by her parents. They were good at their world, at least, and he seemed bad even at his. Darling, be mine. I love you. More Blackjack Daniels, he said, and make it snappy. I am the customer. It was brought. I pay, he said, lashing simoleons to the countertop. I own a grade of Wurlitzer chicken parlors, and every grade A friar has my brand on its ass. Later, some entirely theoretical argument with the bartender ensued, during which the bartender thrust his face over the bar at Payne to inquire how anybody was going to wage trench warfare on the moon when every time you took a step, you jumped 40 feet in the air. Payne reeled into the night. He was standing in front of the Fitzgerald's door, in the dark, with no good in mind. Anne would be asleep. Inside of him where all secrets were born in darkness, a kind of Disneyland of the intestines went into operation throwing forth illusions, missed timings, and false alarms. Payne had a moment of terrible littleness. He pulled back his sleeve to learn the time and discovered he no longer owned a watch. He felt better. He saw again how he might be illustrious.
0: Do you want to say anything more about it?
1: Yeah, I love how the diction ranges from incredibly high to almost kind of Looney Tunes-ish. Like, the, the words... Wrangle from this almost like, you know, Elizabethan diction to down into this like, kind of cornpone sort of hominess. I love how language exists. You're never quite certain if you're in Payne's head or if you're not. Um, there's just almost like coiled kinetic energy at the heart of all these sentences. And if you've ever seen the way McGuane edits himself, you can see that he's cut, like he has these pages, right? In his Paris Review interview, you can see how he works. There's the page, and probably 80% of it is crossed out. And so what I think he's, he does is he edits himself by just saving the most sort of kind of whack-a-doodle, out-there, visionary kind of sentences and just compresses them into these, like, sections where every sentence just feels like this a beautiful new sports car whizzing by, you know, and it creates this really comically exciting and 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 bizarrely dislocating effect that I've never been able to like approximate it. I thought I wanted to write like Tom McGuane, and then realized I couldn't in my wildest dreams. But there's something about that goofball energy that I really respond to, and and have really kind of tried to approximate in my own way uh, writing.
0: When you read something you wrote, maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is from a story called um, A Bridge Underwater. And um, I'll tell the story of it after I finish reading. Uh, In the story, this newlywed couple who are not having a wonderful honeymoon, they're coming out of this place called the Capuchin Crypt in Rome. On their way down zigzagging stairs, they passed a dozen American student tourists sitting on, around, and along the stone balustrade. The boys clearly suffering the misapplications of energy that distinguished all educational field trips, spoken, hey, I'm shouting voices to the bare shouldered and sort of lusciously sweaty girls sitting two feet away from them. She was upsettingly conscious of the adult conservatism of her thinly striped collared shirt and black skirt. She was not yet showing so much that her wardrobe required any real overhaul, and her collar, moreover, had wilted in the heat. She felt like a sun-baked flower someone had overwatered in recompense. How much older was she than these girls, anyway, who seemed to her another species altogether? And yet she was only 26, her husband 34. Two once unimaginable objects, the first incubating in her stomach and the second enclosed around her ring finger, made her, she realized, unable to remember what being 19 or 20 even felt like. Looking into the anime innocence of these girls' faces was to discover the power of new anxieties and the stubbornness of old ones. At the bottom of the stairs, three tanned and lithe young Italian women walked unknowably by. She often felt herself bend away from people who knew how good they looked. But these women had such costume party exuberance and seemed to waste not to stare. That belt? $300. Easy. She somehow counted five purses among them. She hated the farthest girl's rimless, aviatric sunglasses only because she knew she could never wear them without fearing she looked ridiculous. She glanced, glanced down at her pink-accented gray Pumas and then over at one of the growingly distant Italian's sassy red pumps. She had worn the Pumas only because she felt marriage should annul the desire to impress strangers, a thought that made her feel at once happy and vaguely condemned." So. I was living in Rome when I started writing this story. I had like a week left. I think it was two days before I left. I got maybe like 10 pages into the story, and I was stuck on this moment where this couple comes out of the Capuchin crypt. And I knew, and it's from her perspective, right? So I'm writing in the voice and in the mind of this 26-year-old woman married to this buffoon. And I knew they had to come out of the Capuchin crypt, and I knew she had to be upset about something just to start them on this rather rocky afternoon. God help me, I couldn't figure out what this woman would be so upset about. So I had her obsessed about him, being mad at him. But that just felt common. That felt easy. And the day before I left Rome, I realized I have to go to this place. I just have to go there. And I have to imagine that I'm a 26-year-old woman, that I'm with a buffoon, and I have to walk down those steps and just report what I see. And so I did that. I went to the Capuchin Crypt notebook in hand, and I walked on the stairs. Everything I just described to you is exactly what I saw that day when I went there as a reporter. But I didn't go there as a reporter named Tom Bissell. I went there doing my best to imagine my way into this young woman's position. And the things that upset me when I was imagining I was her, I think, were the things that upset her. And I saw these Italian women stroll by. I saw their clothes and their, their, their purses. And I was imagining, like, what does it feel to be newly married? What does it feel to be slightly pregnant and just feel gross? And I'm really, like, I have no idea if it's a sex- successful section if you're not thinking, boy, I wish you would have read something else. <laughs> but um, I'm proud of that section because I feel like I successfully inhabited another human being there. And I thought it was so curious that it actually took me going there to do it. And it was a, it was a pretty interesting lesson for me because sometimes imagination can only take you so far. Sometimes you actually have to like do the extra work of um, being there. And that's what acting and writing have in common, right? You, every sensory input helps. And uh, for me, who wears these multiple hats of fiction writer and journalist, et cetera, et cetera, sometimes I got to remind myself that people report for a reason because it's very helpful. Where do you write? I write at this desk that I'm sitting at right now. But when my family is not around, I often write in bed which I cannot figure out. But uh, when I'm doing a very reported heavy piece, like I wrote a piece for Harper's a couple of years ago uh, about Trump and Saturday Night Live. And um, my family went out of town that weekend while I was gonna work on the piece. And I did what I always used to do when I was single and lived alone, is I just stack all my books up on, in the bed and just write sitting up in bed and write all day and literally just push the books over and go to sleep <laughs> and then wake up, drag them back to me and get right back to work. It's a wonderful way to get a lot done, but it's also you know, a wonderful way to make yourself go insane because you do feel like that guy in the madman in the dictionary or whatever that book was called. The, what was it, the book about the Oxford? I forget what that book's called. Uh, the mad professor and the madman. You could just make yourself feel like you're a lunatic when you work that way, but it's it's worked out. It's I've done that a lot in my life. What do you do,
0: or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I walk. I uh, lift weights. I walk. Play video games. Hang out with my daughter. Build Legos with my daughter. These are all things that I go that when I'm sick of writing and I can't think anymore about it. Uh, walking, working out, daughter time video games, those are the things where I just can't, I can't, I can't solve this problem, I have to think about something else. And then of course, inevitably, the problem solves itself for you while you're doing these other things. And then you rush back to the computer, type up the solution, look at it the next day and think, oh shit, that's not it at all. <laughs> but for a minute, you were convinced it was, and that's the, that's the secret to solving problems. You just keep throwing stuff at the wall until something fixes.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Uh, I show it to my partner, uh, Trisha. Um, and then when she says it's great and she always does, because what else is she going to say? Um, I sent it to, uh, I have two writer friends, one woman named Adrienne Miller, a novelist and, a, and an essayist. And, um, she's one of my closest literary friends. She, she's kind of my first reader for everything. And then uh, a guy named Dan Josephson, who's a novelist, who's my, my, one my closest friend. He's, he's my other first reader for everything. And, if, they, if they're into it, uh, I'm feeling pretty confident because they do not hesitate to tell me when something's not working. So uh, those are my, my first readers. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, it's never been that hard for me. Like I feel bad for a day, but then I just move on. And, and I feel like it's related to how I deal with praise too, which is I feel good for 10 minutes and then I just move on. Like what for whatever reason, praise and just praise, don't, they don't really make a dent because I just feel like If I'm happy with it, that's the best I can do. And very rarely is a piece of really negative criticism convinced me that something I thought was good was bad or really positive praise for something that I thought was maybe not so good convinced me that it was good. Like I'm my own barometer for better or for worse. And if I can read it and feel like the version of me that never became a writer, like if that kid who was just mad for prose back in the late 90s, mid 90s, was reading every book he could get his hands on, If I'm writing something that I think that kid would have picked up and enjoyed, I'm doing okay. And um, not to say I'm proud of everything I've ever written, but praise and rejection don't really faze me much. I say that with no pride, and I say that with no self-recrimination either. It's just the way I'm wired.
0: What is your favorite word?
1: Vex. Vexed. Something that's vexing, I'm vexed. It sounds cool. It's kind of old-timey, but it sounds modern. Shakespeare used it. I believe he may have coined it. Um, it, sounds, it sounds like the moor. It reeks of witchcraft. It's such a good word, and, it, and it's uh, such a colorful word. And uh, I love that you can vex other people. You can vex yourself. Things can vex you. And being vexed implies a really deep puzzlement about the state of the world, and that it also implies some malevolent force acting against you, which is, which is another thing I like about it vexation. is my favorite one.
0: Thank you so much for your time and for this discussion. I really appreciate it.
1: I'm delighted. Thank you for having me.
0: If you liked today's show with Tom Bissell, author of Creative Types, check out my interview with another native Michigan writer, Jack Driscoll, who writes about domestic situations with an uncanny eye. We talked about the rhythm of prose, what stories teach you about how to write them, and his fascination with time. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of nearly 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wilde, Susan Orlean, Charlotte Wood, and Thritti Umagar. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.